um, maximum, and, and we are looking forward to going through the book of Titus. In case you're wondering what in the world is the, is the letter to Titus, it's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a worker, a Christian worker, a fellow co-worker of his on the island of Crete. And that's a, a little island about 160 miles long, somewhere in the middle of the Mediterranean, southeast of Greece. And so Paul is writing to Titus, who he has actually sent out as his emissary to this island of Crete. So maybe at the outset you're wondering, you know, why in the world did we pick this letter right now for us to go through? You know, why did we pick this letter? Because it isn't after all, maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you kind of skip over Titus because you think, you know what, that doesn't really apply to me. Anybody ever had that thought of like, Titus, that doesn't really apply to me. That's just to Christian leaders, right? Anybody had that thought before? It, well, you know, it's common to have the idea that Titus is just a letter written to a Christian leader about how to install other leaders and it's some kind of church manual. But that's really not at all what the book of Titus is primarily about. The Apostle Paul, he's written to Titus, but he's actually just sent Titus there. So Titus is probably carrying this letter or has had this letter with him or just recently received it, but he hasn't been in, in Crete very long. And Paul is kind of writing this letter as an introduction to him as Paul's emissary or kind of like Paul's ambassador. So if you were going to go and serve in another country as an ambassador, you would probably want some kind of introduction like an introduction from the president, explaining what your commission is and, and what your responsibilities are and what your authority is and what you're supposed to do. And so we need to look at the, the letter to Titus that way. This is, is not a letter that's written because Titus was unclear, because after all, Titus had been a friend of Paul's probably for about 20 years, and, and he had been working with Paul for at least 15 or 16 years that we know of. The first time we see Titus was in the book of Galatians, and and well, actually, he's referred to before that, but in the book of Galatians, we see that he's referred to directly, and Paul takes him into Jerusalem on a visit there, and, and he's kind of like a trophy of Paul's. He is this mature man of God that Paul takes into Jerusalem as an uncircumcised Greek, and that would have been shocking to everybody in Jerusalem at the time, because the idea of an uncircumcised Greek being saved, much less coming to Jerusalem and, and being demonstrated for his Christian maturity would have been surprising. And that's how Paul, we're first introduced to Titus. Paul introduces us in Galatians and talks about how he brought Titus about 14 years kind of after he had first visited Jerusalem, when after he had first become a believer. He brought Titus with him kind of as a first fruits of ministry saying, see, look, look at the effects of the gospel lived out in the life of this uncircumcised Greek named Titus. And then we see later on that, that Paul uses Titus in, in a lot of different occasions. We, Titus is mentioned 13 times in other places in the New Testament. And, and he was kind of used as, as Paul's navy seal of Christianity, if you will. He, he kind of went in when, when things were bad and difficult, when Paul couldn't get there, or when Paul maybe didn't want to go there, and he sent Titus in. So Titus probably took this other letter to the Corinthians in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. There was this severe letter that, that Paul wrote to them that, that really kind of beat them up. And most likely, Titus was the one who delivered that. And now, Titus, we see in 2nd Corinthians, he's the one who's bearing the letter to 2nd Corinthians. So he's kind of smoothing things over. He's, he's handling some delicate situations. He's exercising church discipline. So Paul sends him all over the place, kind of using him 
as a godly example of what does it look like to, to live by faith for God? What does it look like to be a Christian leader, a Christian man serving the Lord? And so Titus is used in all these kind of different places. So we are picking the book of Titus, or the little teeny letter of Titus, really. It's only a couple pages. Because what Titus demonstrates to us is what does it look like to live by faith? What does it look like to live by faith? And really that sets his commission to Titus. Says, Titus, I'm sending you there so that you can set the church in order so that they understand what does it look like to live by faith? What's the Christian walk all about? How do you actually live out this faith that we are called to? They needed to know the truth if they were to have faith. And their, if their faith was real and living, they needed to know what that faith looked like. And so Titus was sent for that reason. Now the setting in Crete, you have a little background. So you're wondering, you know, most of us are not familiar with Crete. And especially not in the first century when this letter was written to. But, but Crete was a very different place. They were actually known as selfish, self-centered, gluttonous liars. Isn't that great? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you want it to be known by that? You know, Cretan, if you ever heard the term Cretan, well, it comes from Crete because they were, they were known for such debauchery and, and selfishness and gluttony that it was kind of synonymous. To be a Cretan meant that you were self-indulgent, self-centered, and a liar. Now, I, I know today that might seem far-fetched, but not terribly so. You know, this, this North American culture that we live in um, to some degree, has some similarities to Crete, right? You might think, oh, no, not at all. But think about it. They were self-indulgent, self-focused, self-centered, and gluttonous. And, and really, isn't that the American way? You know, it's to get all that you can, you can get, to be all that you can be, not just in the army, but by yourself, and to look out for number one, to, to make sure that you protect your own, that you get all that you can get, to acquire all you can acquire, that you're faithful to yourself, and you know what, everything is, is fair game in the United States at least, as long as you're true to yourself and you're doing what makes you feel good. That's kind of a very Cretan idea. And then our, our politicians, no matter what political party you're part of, by the way, um, I don't care if you are independent, Republican, Democrat, or something else, our, our politicians all kind of demonstrate that, that we believe as a culture, Americans believe as a culture, that it's kind of okay to deceive and manipulate a little as long as to get your own way. Right? That's the culture that we're living in as well. So it's not an exact parallel, but there's a lot of similarities between Americans and Cretans. And we need to know, what does it look like to live by faith in this environment in this culture that we live in so this little letter to Titus it really demonstrates what does it look like to live by faith as a believer in a hostile environment and in Crete as well they were surrounded by kind of two reactions by Christians and I think this is common for us today you know when we look around we see the world around us how bad things are how evil people are um, how much debauchery and selfishness there is we look around there, there can be two christian type responses and i say christian in quotes because they're not really christian but two kind of responses by the church some would say you know what we need to be nothing like that and you know what we're going to take pride in being completely different completely separate we're going to take pride in not looking acting or talking anything like that and then christianity is really becomes about a series of rules as a protection against the culture and so that's another word for that is really legalism that's that's one reaction the church can have 
And we, that, was, that was what was happening in this environment. There were some Judaizers saying that. But then there were also people who said, you know what? No, 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 no. Christianity is not really offensive. It doesn't really challenge how you live. And in fact, Christianity is compatible with selfishness and self-centeredness. And so they had watered down Christianity on the other extreme. And another word for that is this licentiousness, which I think a lot of believers today are tempted to do. To either have one extreme be legalistic or have this kind of loose, greasy grace, as we used to call it when I was growing up, that, that really says, you know what, it doesn't really matter how you live to each his own. We can all are just free to live how we want to live. And, and grace has set us free, so it really doesn't matter how we live any longer. And, and that is license, and Titus is sent to address that as well. And he's sent to help the people in Crete know what does it look like to live by faith with an eternal hope. And that's what we see in the very first part of the letter to Titus. And so let's dive into this letter. Turn your Bibles to Titus. We're just going to read the first four verses of chapter one. And if you're going to title this little mini-series that we're taking over the next couple of months, you could just say, A Living Faith in eternal hope. That's, that's the title overall for the, the series on Titus. What does it look like to have a living faith in eternal hope? What does that look like? And so with that as background, let's le- read God's word together. And then I'm going to get back to a practice that we, we kind of gotten away from because Nehemiah has been so long. And, and with, it's rare when we've read anything less than a chapter in Nehemiah. So I've never had you stand typically with Nehemiah. But let's stand together for the reading of God's word. And why, why we're standing is we're just acknowledging that this isn't just Paul writing to them. This is God writing to us. And so we're receiving his word as unique. So let's listen to God's word today. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you wrote your word and it is timeless. God, thank you that you know the human condition. You know the struggles we face. You know the trials we face. You know the situations we are all in. And you know our hearts. God, you know what we need. You know that we need our identity to be found in you. You know that we need to know who we are in you and that we need to know what you've called us to do. We need to know what our hope is in. God, thank you for this passage, this scripture that reveals the hope that we have in you. It reveals who we are and what we're living for. God, I pray that you would, you would empower each and every person here, all of us, to hear from you. God, open up our ears, open up our hearts and minds that we might receive from you. Penetrate our dull hearts, awaken our sleeping minds. Make us alive to you, Lord, I pray. God, and by your spirit, would you move and work mightily today in Jesus' name. Help us to live by your grace. In your name we pray, amen. Well, it is a real gift 
if you know who you are and why you're here. But it's not always common. And I think that most of the world today doesn't know who they are or, or, or why they're here. You know, but being, knowing who you are and why you're here, being secure in that, it affects everything that you do. And if, and if this morning you are not secure in who you are and why you are here, and I don't just mean this church, but I mean on this planet, what God has called you to and for, ultimately, that, that supersedes your job, that supersedes what season of life that you are in, if you are secure in that, that gives you great freedom and hope for life. But if you're not sure in those things, then it makes you really unstable. And it it makes it so that we live for other things. If you look all around us, there's there's a lot of confusion about identity today, right? There's there's everything from identity politics to people being confused about their sexual identity to people being confused about, you know, how do they refer to themselves? And there's a lot of insecurity about who people are. And so because of insecurity and a lot of confusion about identity, people look for identity in a lot of other places. You know, if you don't know who you are, if you're not secure in who you are in Christ, and if you are not sure why God's put you here, you're going to look for identity and you're going to look for meaning and purpose in a lot of different things. And, and maybe, maybe you are tempted in those ways as well. You know, you're going to look for potentially identity in what you do, as if what you do defines you. But that's fleeting because what happens if you can't do something? What happens if you are no longer able to function, to able to work? Where would your identity be? Or if you're not secure in who you are, then you you might look for your identity not only in what you do, but maybe in what you have. But what if everything you have is taken away from you? What if you no longer have things? Where would your identity be then? Or others who struggle with identity, it's not just in what they do or in what they have, but it's in what other people think about them. And so they need to prop themselves up to look good. And so maybe it's about physical appearance or maybe it's clothes or style or how they talk or how cool they are or they fit in or not. And so they look for identity there. And the reality is is that I don't know about you, but I am very aware that I am not getting better looking as I get older. My, My body is not increasing and improving. There, there comes a time in life when somewhere past 30 or 40 maybe, being generous for everybody who's under 40, you can take a deep breath, I'm not going to talk to you, but um, after 40 you begin to decline and then things sag that never did before and your eyes have bags and, and you get wrinkles and you start to decline. So if your hope is in what you look like, eventually we're all going to look the same. You know, we're, we're all going to look all wrinkly and old, and, and there's not a, and all going to have either gray hair or no hair, you know? And, and, and so if our hope is in what we look like, that's fleeting. Our identity can't be in that. And I'm, and I'm not condemning anybody without hair, by the way. Some guys, they just look better without hair. Not many, but some. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, I'm not looking at anybody. Probably shouldn't have gone there, but that's okay. I need to stay on my notes here. Get in trouble. You know, I want my kids to know who they are in in Christ. As a parent, I've I've got six kids, by the way, and so as a parent, I I am very aware that my greatest hope for my children is that they would be secure in who they are in Jesus Christ and that they would know why they're here, ultimately, 
that, that's a greater reason that's greater than anything else that they do or what accomplishments they have or how much money they can earn or what they look like or how great they are, how terrible they are at sports. I, I want them to be secure in who they are in Christ and, and why God has placed them here because those things I know will secure them and they will be confident in God if they know those things. But you know, the problem is many people today don't really know who they are and don't have any idea why they're here. So a lot of people are still trying to figure themselves out in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 80s. They didn't skip the 70s on purpose. You know, how about you? Do you know who you are? Do you know why you're here? Are you secure in who you are? Are you secure in the purpose with, for which God has called you as a Christian? If not, God has written this passage in this little letter so that we can be secure in God. And, and this morning, I think that God has a reminder for us that, that we can have fresh hope for living the life that God has from us and that God wants us to know today that we're servants of God. That's who we are. We're, we're called in him and we're called and elected and chosen in him. We are his servants. That's who we are. And you know what? No matter what happens in your life, that's something that can never be taken away from you if you are God's servant. No one can make you Otherwise. So we're servants of God. That's the main idea we're going to focus on. For the sake of faith. We, we've been given a life for the sake of the faith. We're servants of God for the sake of faith. And we're secure and saved in his grace. Really, that's the, that's the main idea that we're going to see in this passage. Is that we are servants of God for the sake of faith. And we're say, secure and saved in his grace. So from this little introduction to this little letter to a friend... We're going to see a lot of things. The first, first four parts of that main idea, really, we see the first part is that Paul demonstrates in verse 1 that we're servants of God by his own example. So as he's writing to Titus, he is actually teaching the people what life is to be about. And he writes himself, his primary identity is servant of God. That's the first thing we see. The second part of verse 1 that he demonstrates is really that, that we are serving for the sake of faith. We're serving for the sake of the faith. And then the third thing we'll see in verse two is that, that he is, his, everything he's all about is for the sake of eternal hope. We're secure in eternal hope. He writes so we might be secure in eternal hope. And then in verse four, he shows that we're saved into God's family. And right off the bat though, Paul starts off with telling us who he is. And if you think about it, it's kind of surprising that Paul refers to himself this way. But Paul refers to himself first and foremost as God's servant. Now, this is the first time that he does that. He typically refers to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. But he sees that Christ is God and the people in Crete need to see that as well, that Jesus is not somehow inferior to God. He is co-equal with God. And so Paul, though, is primarily identified as a servant of God. How do you think of yourself? When you first think of who you are, when somebody says, who are you? Tell me about yourself. What's your first response? You know, in Northern Virginia, where, where I grew up, um, when, when somebody says, you know, tell me about yourself, you know, the first thing out of people's mouths is what they do. And then the second thing maybe is where they live. And then you hear about, you know, somehow it's kind of getting around all these affluent ideas. How about you? When somebody says, you know, tell me about yourself, what's your first response? 
That's, that's often revealing about what you think about who you are. And, and Paul, the very first thing he says is, I am a servant of God. That's my primary identity. Now the actual word for servant there, it, it means slave or bondservant. It's somebody who belongs to somebody else. And I think for the Apostle Paul, why he was so aware that he was a servant, why he identified that way, is because once he was not. He was a servant of the flesh. He was a servant of legalism. He was a servant of sin. And so he is so aware that God has has transformed him, that God has changed him, that his primary identity now is a servant of God. When you think about who you are, what's your primary identity? Are you, do you belong to God? Are you secure as his servant? You know, my, my wife and I, we enjoy watching a, a TV series that I think they've just canceled last season. It was called Designated Survivor. And in, in this series, it's about a guy who accidentally becomes president. He was, he was the secretary of, I think, housing and urban development. And he was set aside as a designated survivor in case, you know, the cabinet goes away. And so the Capitol building is bombed and everybody dies. And he becomes this accidental president. And why it's kind of cool is because he, he's not, he didn't want the job and he sees himself primarily as a servant of the people. And that's kind of a theme. And that's kind of what makes you like him on the show is that he, he, he sees himself as a servant of the people. He's, he's here to work for the good of the American people. He's, he's here not to put his own interests first, but to put the interests of the American people ahead of his own. And, you know, it's kind of an idealistic view of the presidency that I, that I wish we had in any president, no matter what party you're a part of. And, and, and so he sees himself as a servant of God, and it's endearing, and all the people that, that work for him, they're inspired by that example of seeing himself as the servant of the people. But if you think about it, Paul's example is way more inspiring by that. And in some degree, Paul was an accidental servant. He didn't plan that. Paul, he wrongly thought he was serving God's purposes, but he was actually fighting against God. He was putting confidence in his own flesh. He was, he was putting confidence in his behavior and what he could do. He was putting confidence in his ability to please God on his own. And he was a Pharisee of Pharisee. He was an ultimate legalist. And he didn't even know it. He wasn't looking to be a Christian. And in fact, he was persecuting and killing Christians. And so he becomes an accidental servant, an accidental apostle, if you will, not of his own volition, but God knocks him down on, on the road, blinds him. Jesus himself speaks to Paul and changes who he is at his very core. And Paul now can say that he is a servant of God and his entire life is immediately changed. Everything that Paul was living for is now changed and transformed. He does a complete 180. He is no longer living to, to, uh, to, to say, hey, we're saved by the law. Now he's saying we're saved by God's grace through Jesus Christ. This message I was opposed to is now the message that God has saved me to be a servant of. And he sees himself primarily as a servant. How do you see yourself? You see, I think there's some humility in the Apostle Paul referring to himself this way because it's a very lowly title to be a slave, to be a servant. Because he knows where he came from. And he knows that it's all of God's grace that he's a servant at all. You know, think about it for a minute. Where were you? Before you were a Christian, before you decided to place your faith in Jesus Christ, where were you? 
Now, you, you might not have had a life of debauchery that, that looked as bad on the outside as some. But you know, ultimately, any rebellion, any trust or confidence in your own ability is noxious before God. So wherever you were before you were a Christian, you were a slave to sin. That was your primary identity once. That was who you were. That was who you were. You were a slave to sin. It was not possible for you to not sin. It was once not possible for you to stop sinning. It was not possible for you to live for God before. But now, our identity is primarily that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and if if God has transformed you, so now you are trusting in Jesus for your life, then now your primary identity is a servant of God, and that is absolutely astounding. That is absolutely astounding. You once were God's enemy, like the Apostle Paul. You once were fighting and hating God, and yet now, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, God has rescued you, and our primary identity, how we're known now, we're not known by a past life, we're not known by who we used to be, we are now known by being servants of God, saved by God's grace. How about you? Do you know who you once were? Do you, are you confident now that you are no longer who you once were, but now, not, not like, oh, I'm a servant of God, but now I get to be a servant of God. Now God saved me so that I'm his servant and I'm not the servant of Satan and sin. We belong to God by his grace. We get to be God's servants, no longer slaves of sin, but slaves to righteousness. How awesome is that? Is that how you view yourself? Who we are shapes how we live and what we live for. You know what, God, if you're God's servant as well, God, you are secure in him. And God takes care of his own. And then as an official apostle, we see that that Paul writes, he says, he's not just a servant, he's also an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, none of us here are apostle in the sense that Paul meant. He was a unique apostle called by Jesus to write scripture along with the other apostles. And all the apostles have died off, but we have their witness today in the writings of the New Testament in scripture. So there's no longer an apostle in that sense. But there is another sense that I, I think we are apostles in the sense that we are sent out ones. Because the very word for apostle, it means sent out ones. So Paul was commissioned in a unique way and sent out. But you know what? At the end of his ministry, Jesus sent all of us out. And he gave us commission. So now we are all sent out ones. We are his servants who are sent out. So it defines who we are and what we're here for. And he's commissioned us and has sent us out on this mission. And not only does Paul know who he is and, and he's sure of what he's here for, we can be sure of who we are and what we're here for. And then the second half, there's the sake, the goal of what Paul was living for. He knew who he was. He was a servant of God. He was sent out by God. Just like we are servants of God, we are sent out by God. But we are living for a greater goal, and that's not to have a big 401k or a great retirement or a big title or to have a utopian community that we create around ourselves or to create the perfect family ideal. We are all about serving for the sake of faith just like the Apostle Paul. There's so many causes that people can live for today. You know, it doesn't take very long if you are on social media to to see all the different causes that people live for. 
And Paul says his greatest cause, his goal, he was living for the sake of the faith of God's elect. He was living for the sake of the faith of God's elect. He was living so that others who have been chosen by God might have faith in him and might know God. He says the knowledge of God and they might live for him. They might be godly. He's, that's what he's living for. He's living for the sake of faith. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you're hoping in him for your life, it means that you are God's elect. The, you're the ones who Paul was giving his life for, who Paul was living for the sake of. We are the ones, all of those who place our faith in Jesus Christ are God's elect. And so this teeny little verse, it's, it's not the main idea of the book of Titus, but it's, it's front and center at the very beginning. We have these two things. We have God's sovereignty and human responsibility right at the outset, and, and there's no, they're, they're not contradictory. He lives for the faith of God's elect. He lives for the faith of those who have been chosen in God. And if you have faith in Jesus, you can be sure that God has chosen you. Faith and election, they go hand in hand here. In, in the church in Crete, it wasn't a church because of human will, but because God had chosen them. So he was living for the sake of their faith, that they might know Jesus and have faith in response, and then that they might know that they are God's chosen ones. And the elect were those who had already come to faith in God. You know, all who have faith in God and who have repented are God's elect. And all God's elect will be people who must respond with faith and repentance. And so we have both human responsibility and divine sovereignty, and that should give us hope. If you believed in Jesus, if you placed your faith in him, you can be sure God's chosen you. You're secure in him. And that is a wonderful privilege and truth that we can rest in, is that we can be sure because we have faith that we're chosen in him. And then we live for the fact that not only that, we get to share that knowledge of who Jesus is, the knowledge of the truth, so that others might have faith and be secure in Christ. That's what Paul was writing for. His goal was for the faith of God's elect, and he says, and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Is, is that our goal? Is that what we're living for? Are we living so that others might know who Jesus is, that they might have faith in him, and then live a life of godliness in response. And in that order, by the way. See, godliness doesn't make you saved. You know, living an externally good-looking life doesn't make you saved. The Apostle Paul's very own life testifies to that. But godliness will always be the fruit of those who have placed their faith in the truth of who Jesus is. If you know the truth of who Jesus is and you place your faith in him, it's going to have results and it's going to transform the world. You know, if you say, hey, I want to change the world. I want to transform the whole world. You know the best way to transform the world? Live for the sake of the faith of others so that they might know who Jesus is, place their faith in him, and then be dramatically transformed. Because the gospel has a transformative effect. If you want to give your life to the greatest cause ever, give your life to to proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is so that others might have faith in him and then be dramatically changed. What a great cause that we can live for. When we embrace the gospel, it has an effect. It produces godliness. You know, God's goal in salvation is to make us new and change us so we bear good fruit for him. We know we're not saved by that good fruit, but that good fruit, it's what God intends so that that's, that's God's 
redemption plan. He, he sent his son to rescue us, to save us, that we might know him, we might place our faith in him, and then we might live for him. The Christian life, it's meant to result in something. And that's, that's good news because you know what? This world does need to change. I need to change. My neighbors need to change. My workplace, including the church. You know, your workplace needs to change. We all need to change. And by God's grace, we have hope. As we get to know God more and more, by faith, he brings that change about. Ultimately, our hope and security is not in works, but it gives evidence that we know Jesus. And the purpose of, of, of our ministry as Christians is to show that God has changed our lives so much that we are now living for him. But the question for each and every one of us, is that what we're living for? Is that our goal? Not only are we servants of God for the sake of faith, we're also secure in eternal hope. That's the third thing we see in this passage. We're secure in eternal hope. Now, I was thinking, you know, if you're not secure in eternal hope, then, then we're gonna seek security in everything else. And, and that's really what we see as, as we look at, at the effects around us in the world, why the world's such a bad place. If you're not secure in your hope, you're gonna place your hope in your situation. But you know what? I don't know about you, but my situation, it's not constant. My situation changes day to day. You know, even the weather changes day to day. We can't rely on the weather here, even in the south. You know, most of the time in the summer, it's going to be hot, sure. But if we place our hope in our situation, that's going to be a very frail hope. But I'm tempted to do that. You know, I'm tempted when things go badly in life or when people don't like me or when things don't go my way or I don't get my way or maybe when there's financial difficulties or when I get sick or I can list a hundred other things, I'm tempted to think that somehow my hope is now less. Well, God must not really love me because I'm not feeling so good today. Or, you know what, God must not really love me. I must not be secure in him because I'm sick. Or God must not really love me. I must not, he must not be really pleased with me. He must not really be for me because I'm not doing financially well. Or God must not really love me because I'm struggling and I'm suffering. You know, hoping in anything else other than the secure hope that we have in him and the life that we have in him, it, it's really risky it's really frail. Imagine for a second, just look up here for a second. Imagine for a second that you are suspended over the Grand Canyon. Imagine that there is a glass bridge. Now, I've heard that they actually have built a little glass walkway that goes out over a little bit of the Grand Canyon, and and I have no desire to go do that. Um, Zero desire to go do that. I'm I'm nervous of heights. You know, if I get near a cliff, I kind of edge close to it like this, and then I kind of get this close, and I kind of look over it like that. You know, and sometimes I'll even like lay down before I look over it because I want to be sure I have issues. That's not the only one, but I have at least that issue. You know, that's why when I was younger, I, I, I learned how to rock climb to kind of help overcome that fear. It, it didn't work, but I loved rock climbing um, because then I placed my hope in a rope. And so if I don't have a rope, then I'm, I'm just as a me- much a mess. But if I have a rope, then somehow I think, oh, I'm good. You know, I've got a rope. And... You know, imagine for a minute though that you're suspended over the Grand Canyon and you are on this glass bridge over across the Grand Canyon and you are walking out and you're about midway through the Grand Canyon and, and you're on this glass bridge and then, and imagine there's no railings, it's just a glass bridge, you know, that should make everybody feel a little bit, 
nervous right now, you know. And if you're not, then um, something's wrong with you. But um, <laughs> no, then, I, then I, I, I'm, just, I'm just jealous, actually. Um, but if you're over this Grand Canyon, imagine that you're on this glass bridge, and then as you're midway across, all of a sudden you hear a pop. And you feel this, you feel this popping underneath your feet. And then you, you look down, and then there's cracks in the glass. And, and these cracks, they're beginning to kind of spiderweb out, and they're growing. You know, what would you do? You probably run like crazy. Or maybe, maybe like me, you probably drop down on all fours or, or like spread out, spread your weight out. Maybe I'll inch across. You know, that's the way to go. Well, whatever your response is, you would have very little hope if you were in the middle, suspended over the Grand Canyon on a glass bridge that's cracking. It's very frail. It, it would be tenuous at best. And, and, and it would be very likely that your destiny would be to, if you're relying on this cracking bridge, your destiny would be to plunge to the bottom of the Grand Canyon along with that failing bridge. And that's what it's like as we put our hope in anything else other than Jesus. If we put our hope for life in what you do, in your situation, your circumstances, in your health, in your security, your relationships with other people, Man, those things crack. They all crack. They all fade. And it's like we're standing on a glass bridge above the Grand Canyon when we put our hope in something else. You know, at any moment it might come crashing down around you. And so what do we do when, how do we respond when our hope is, is insecure? Well, we try to grasp and grab. We try to get things. We try to, we deceive, we manipulate people to hide the fact that we really aren't that good. We try to manipulate and deceive people because we, we, really are, we really are very good at our job. We're very good at what we do. And so people lie and steal and cheat and, and all kinds of behavior comes about. Or maybe you manipulate other people or you try to get people to like you and you prop yourself up and you pretend to be somebody else you are because you're putting your hope in all these other things. Or maybe it's more subtle than that. And so, you know, you try to say, you know what, um, I'm going to live as much as a healthy life as I can. But it goes beyond just, hey, you know what, I want to honor God with my temple because this is how I worship him. And, and it can go beyond that subtly, and we can put our hope and our confidence in our own little health remedies. Maybe you're there, you know, if I do all these things. And so your hope subtly shifts from in God to these health remedies. Or, or maybe your hope subtly shifts from, you know, from God to, no, I'm going to make as much money as possible. Or maybe your, your hope subtly shifts from that to, you know what, I'm, I know that I'm no good, but my hope now is going to be my kids, and so I'm going to live through them. You know, it, it, it's, it can be subtle, but ultimately we need to know that we are secure in, in the hope of eternal life. That's the one thing that God says, you can be certain that I love you if you place your faith in Jesus. You can be certain that I love you and you can be certain that I love you because I sent my son to die for you. You can be certain of that and you can be certain if you place your hope in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you place your hope in Jesus for life, you can be secure that no matter what happens here on earth, you have eternal life in me. We can be secure in our eternal hope. And if you know your foundation is secure, you walk differently. You know, today, most of you are sitting on a very thin veneer of carpet that is on concrete. 
and it feels very secure. And I doubt that anybody, when they came in, thought, oh my goodness, is the floor gonna give out? You know, you know but nobody walked in like that, or at least not many people. <laughs> because you just assume that it's secure. You, you, you have a foundation that you think is secure. When your foundation is secure, you can rest, you can trust in it, you don't think twice about it, and it affects how you walk. As a Christian, you need to know that your hope in eternal life is totally secure, and you don't have to worry about this life or the life to come. You know why? Because your hope, your foundation is absolutely secure, and it's meant to affect how we walk. In all the scriptures, Paul says, you know what? You can be secure in this eternal hope, and he gives them two reasons. He says, because your hope is in God who promised, and God never lies, and your hope is also in the message of the gospel that's made manifest now that he he has promised long before the ages and he's now made manifest. You might think for a second, why does he say that we have an eternal hope, we have a hope of eternal life in in God who never lies? Why why does he say that? Well, because Cretans were known as liars. And so they're like, (laughs) I don't know if I can trust a person because nobody I know is trustworthy. And maybe you feel that way. Maybe you have a family member. Maybe you have been burnt by churches or by people. Um, Maybe you have this kind of insecurity. Maybe you have a fear that's based on the fact that, that, you know what, I'm not sure I can trust other people. And and so you transfer that to God. And so here from the Apostle Paul, he says, no, God never lies. That's not who he is. Our hope is eternally secure because our hope is secure in one who never lies. He never changes. His promises are always true. In in the whole Old and New Testament, you know, in the very beginning, even in the curse, when when God was cursing mankind for their sin, and then he curses the serpent, and in the curse, God kind of gives this hint of a promise that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, and so God kind of revealed this promise. And so the whole Old Testament is about how God is faithful to bring his promises about. And the New Testament is the revelation of the promise of God in Jesus Christ. And then Revelation, which by the way, in about five months from now, we're gonna to get to preach through the book of Revelation after Titus, then Jonah, then Revelation. But we're, we're gonna preach about that. And, and the wonderful thing is that it's all about how God is faithful to his promises and we can be sure in the hope that we have. God's faithful, he doesn't lie. People aren't faithful. God never lies. He never breaks his word. His character is always faithful. You know, I love that song, morning by morning new mercies I sing. Great is God's faithfulness. That's what our hope and our trust is in, not in anything else. And what else we can be sure of is, is that the promises of God are sure in Jesus and what does he mean when he says the promises long before the ages began, he says in, in, in this passage in Titus? What he's talking about is the fact, I think, that, that from the very beginning, before the foundations of the world, God the Father promised a people to his son. Did you know that? I want you to look in, in, in John. Jesus talked about this in John 17, 6. He says, he says, I've manifested your name to the people who you gave me. God, you elected them. You gave them to me out of this world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me and they kept your word. And skip down to the verse 24. I think we have this on the overhead. It says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am. 
that is in glory and eternal life to see my glory that you've given to me. Why? Because you love me, listen to this, before the foundation of the world. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Because God promised a people for his own son before the foundation of the world. Because God's chosen us in him from eternity past. We can be secure in the eternal life that we have in him. And, and that should humble us. You know that God Almighty, he, if you've placed your faith in him, he not only thought of you in eternity past, he knew you. And he already said, you know what? I'm giving you to Jesus so that you can be secure. And your hope rests in the fact that, that God has manifested his promises as true in his word. He doesn't just say the promises God has made, but we can also be sure because of the word. And he says that in this passage, because of the word that he's been given to preach. And what is that word that Paul has been given to preach? He uses that phrase really to refer to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have sure hope of eternal life because God's made it known to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to give us this perfect life that we should live, but we never could on our own. So what Jesus, what Jesus did, he's the word demonstrated at the proper time, at just the right time. Jesus is called the very word of God. And Paul is, I think, alluding to that here. He says, he says that the proper words made manifest at the proper time. The words made manifest at the proper time. Jesus has been given to us and he's, been, he's, he's given his life to us. The very life that we could never live. Why is our hope secure? Why? Because Jesus gives his life to us. Because all of his good works are credited to us. And our hope's secure because all the merits of Jesus are ours. Our hope is also secure because Jesus was punished and he died in our place. He, he, he bore the wrath. He's the word manifest at the proper time. He bore the wrath of God that we deserved in our place. He took the death that we deserved. We don't have to fear wrath or his punishment. Our hope of eternal life is secure because of God's promises and then his word made manifest. We have secure hope in him. And the wonderful thing is we've been entrusted with the same message. We have the same privilege of preaching this, the same message that Paul says he was commanded and entrusted with. He was commanded by God to preach this message of the gospel, this good news, and he's also entrusted with it. We have been commanded to preach this same message. We've been entrusted with the same life-changing message. And so it's like this, this big Olympic baton race. You know, Paul here, he is passing the baton to Titus. And he says, Titus, pass the baton on to other elders. And then in this letter, really, as we read it today, it's like Titus and the elders and Paul, they're passing the baton on to us to say, we have something to live for. You have a security in who you are in Christ Jesus. And then you have a purpose to live for, to proclaim this message of God's grace. And not only that, we share this hope of eternal life and that means that we're saved into God's family. That's the final point we're gonna look at is we're saved into God's family. We're saved into God's family. Now, where do I get that from? He's writing, he says, to Titus, look in verse four, my true child in a common faith. You know, the really cool thing is we have this common faith too. The reason why he's a child of Paul is because he shares a common faith. And when he's calling Titus his true, genuine child by faith, it doesn't mean that Paul bore him. It means that he is so much like Paul because of his common faith that he has. 
He is so much like Paul in, his, in what he's living for. He's so much like Paul in, in what he's like, in his character, in his maturity, because he, has this, he shares this same common faith. Now, it could also mean that he, Paul led him to Christ. We're not sure of that. But typically in the Bible, when it says someone is a son of someone, it means that they're so like that person that it's as if they've descended from that person. Now, we kind of speak like that too, don't we? You know, I, I kid around, I was just joking around with people, I think a week or so ago, that, you know, we only make one kind of kid. I, I've got six kids, but they really are all the same. Now, they're very different personality-wise, but they kind of all look the same. I've got three boys and three girls, and, and all three boys and all three girls, you can tell they're Rawlings. They look like us. I don't think anybody would be confused. Hmm, who do those kids come from? They kind of all look the same. We make one kind of kid. You know, I, we, we make... The female kind and the male kind, but they're really the same kind of kid. They all look alike. They're our children. It's clear. It's evident. And then, in good ways and also in ways that are not as good, they're like us in personality, in their traits. Now, what's shocking for the Apostle Paul is, you see, Paul was a Jew of Jews who was really proud of that before he became a Christian. And Jews did not like Gentiles, and they were nothing like them. They weren't the same. And in fact, they took great pride in being distinguished or different than Gentiles. And so Titus, he is a Greek, uncircumcised Gentile. And yet Paul says, he's my true child in a common faith. What does that mean? It means Paul is saying, we're part of the same family. Because we have this common faith in Jesus Christ, we now are part of the same family. God has broken the division, the dividing walls that were once between us of Jew and Gentile, of different ethnicities, different backgrounds, um, different languages, different ways of looking at the world. And God has brought us all together socially, culturally. People who were not alike are now one in God's family in this common faith. You know, I, I think the world today, we had this hope that I don't know, 10 years ago, that, hey, things seem to be like, every, there's no more discrimination, there's, there's no more race issues, there's no more problems like that. In the last probably three, four years, it's become, or maybe 10 years, it's become more and more evident that, you know what? No, we have major issues still. We have lots of issues. People delineate themselves on the basis of ethnicity, or what country they're from, or what their parents were like or how much money they have and all these different things. They, they seek to divide humanity. And God says, no, I've called you to not be like that. I want you to be one in my family in this common faith. And so Paul writes that Timothy, Timothy is my true child in a common faith. And he's God, our Savior. He's Christ Jesus, our Savior. Because what does God do? He, he unites he unites people in himself. The gospel puts us together into his family. So now we're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, not because of the, the background we have or the color of our, of our skin or our country or the things we have in common or our preferences. It's actually despite all of those things and all over superseding all those things, we have an identity of being common members of God's family because of this great faith that we share. He is our Savior. He's our God. He's our Father. And by God's grace now, we have a family that will never be taken away. You know, you, you might be estranged from family members. You might have difficult family. If you have family, I would say you have difficult family. By the way, 
I'm not thinking anybody specific in my family, and I'm not going to name names. But all of us, if you have family, there's no perfect family. If you got family, it's messed up in some way. Somebody in your family is messed up, and it might be you. You might not know it, but... (laughs) But God has given us a family that will never be taken away, that the bonds that can never be broken, even if here on earth, even in the church family, there can be disagreements, but you know what? We have a common faith, and in him, he unites us together as his children. That's what unifies us, we're his children. He's adopted us, he's called us, he's elected us, he's chosen us, he's made us his own. Now we're brothers and sisters and this common faith. Let's not lose sight of that. And then I love how Paul ends. He, he ends this letter with his benediction, his blessing of sorts to Titus. He says, at the end, he says, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. Why does he say that? You know, it, it's not like Titus didn't know any of this stuff. Titus was... He knew all the stuff that Paul was writing to him. But Paul was writing all the stuff for primarily so that the people he was writing to could understand the commission that Titus had, understand what he was there for. And then then ultimately God wrote these things down so we could understand. So we could have, know that we, if we are God's children, if we're united together in this common faith, that this, we have this grace and peace. We have, because of God's grace, we have peace with God. Maybe you are feeling uncertainty in your life because of family. Maybe you're feeling uncertainty in life because of your job, finances, health. Maybe you're feeling uncertainty in life for a hundred other reasons. You, because you have received the grace of God, you've been adopted in him, you now can have peace with God that's unshakable. A, a peace that is greater than anything else in your life, grace and peace from God, not from circumstances, not from what you do. Grace and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus the Savior, our Savior. Because God doesn't lie. He's given us his promises. He's made us his children. He's, he's given us his grace and because we have grace, we can have a peace that can never be taken away. Do you know that? Do you know who you are? Do you know why you're here? It was the grace and peace of God that, that sustained Paul, that was sustained Titus in this difficult church and his mission. And the grace and peace of God is what we need too. We need to know that we're secure in him. That because of his grace, he's made us a servants. We're secure in, in him. We have a hope that can never be taken away. And we're here to proclaim his good news. And, and that, no matter whether our job fails, we can always carry out the purpose he has for us. And, and I love that the letter of Titus doesn't open with grace. It also ends with grace. In, in, in Titus 3.15, the Christian life from first to last sustained by grace, and that gives us peace. What does that mean? Grace and peace, what do they mean for us? It means that we're redeemed and we're chosen in him. Grace and peace to you. What what does it mean? God's grace, it gives us the faith that we need to follow him when our faith is lacking. God's grace, it enables us to know Jesus and to be found in him. And isn't that what we want? God's grace, it enables us to know Jesus, to be found in him. It means we're accepted in him. We're not condemned any longer. That's the effects of this. It means we're secure in who we are in Christ by his grace. 
It gives us something greater to live for and a purpose in life. It means we're secure in the eternal life and he has for us by his grace. His grace means we're adopted in his family. It means we're his children. We can be sure of who we are and why we're here. I can't think of a better way to end. I have the band go ahead and come up and I just want to read you that last line one more time. Grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. Amen. Let's pray.